behavior. Then this one. I'm actually a big fan of sounding anyway. series of seminars uh, hosted by the Norwegian Council for Africa, Fellowship for Africa. We're very pleased to have some prominent and real expert guests this evening to talk about uh, Lagos, one of the, or the fastest growing city in the world. Um, by 2050, one of uh, like the third largest city uh, in the world. Uh, I'd like to just first say a couple of words about the Norwegian Council for Africa. So not only is the Norwegian Council for Africa uh, turning 50 years uh, this year as a as a human rights organization uh, promoting issues uh, of rights on throughout the African continent and putting it into uh, a context, a Norwegian political context or uh, or putting it out into the Norwegian society. Uh, it is also possible to become a member of the Norwegian Council for Africa. Uh, so I'd just like to, to, to point you uh, in uh, or to tell you all that you uh, we rely a lot on uh, on the support that we get from our members in order to be able to do what we what we do uh, in terms of uh, information dissemination uh, and also influencing uh, Norwegian and international policies uh, that can contribute to to um, justice and development on the African African continent. Uh, so please talk to Ranil afterwards uh, in the back. 
Um, and one of the things that you could, could get if you become a member of the Norwegian Council for Africa, Norwegian Council for Africa is this book. Uh, this is our, um, uh, our gift to you as members. Uh, in this book, there are several articles on uh, uh, Nigeria. We also quite recently uh, published a report on economic growth and uh, sovereign debt sustainability, in which Nigeria is one of the one of the uh, case studies. Nigeria is obviously an important country on the continent, but it's also an important co uh, country to uh, to Norway. Uh, diplomatically and economically speaking. Uh, however, in a sense, it seems like uh, our understanding of this vast uh, country uh, in the Norwegian conversation sometimes uh, falls, short of, falls short of going beyond uh, Boko Haram. Uh, so that's why we uh, in the Norwegian Gospel for Africa, host this event uh, this evening to talk about uh, the, like a, a completely different part of the country, to talk about Lagos, uh, which we also will do uh, next week at the book launch uh, on, on Tuesday, uh, where we will uh, launch the book Welcome to Lagos by the up, uh, up and coming Nigerian author Shibundu O. Sorry, Onuso. Uh, Onuso. Uh, and we will also, also actually, speaking of, of, of Boko Haram, on next Wednesday we will host, uh, host um, a launch of a report uh, that seeks to go uh, a bit beyond the headlines as to what Boko Haram really is how significant or perhaps insignificant uh, that movement is in the northeast of, of the country. So, follow the Norwegian Council for Africa and our events on, uh, on Nigeria uh, in the coming week and weeks. But for now, I'd like to hand over the word uh, to Jeff, our uh, moderator this evening. Uh, architect and urban planner uh, based here in Oslo and I'll allow you to to uh, delve into our our issues here at hand so please Jeff thank you very much uh, Johan yeah um, my name is Jeff Forbes I'm an architect and urban planner here in in Oslo um, but I was lucky enough for a few years to work uh, in Nigeria in Port Harcourt uh, not in Lagos, but in Port Harcourt, where it turns out I met Victoria. We didn't realize this until last night. Um, and uh, I've been involved in um, uh, both architectural and urban planning projects uh, in waterfront communities in Port Harcourt, where half a million people's homes were threatened from demolition from the, the local government. So we worked with Amnesty International and local filmmakers, local um, community activists, to help uh, not just move from um, uh, stopping demolition, but to also present a, 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 a proposal for, for, for development of uh, informal settlements. 
So as, a, as an architect and an urban planner, there may be some of you here, and I'm sure there's lots of other different people from different backgrounds, it was an incredible uh, opportunity to see how my skills could be uh, utilized in Africa, but there was a lot more that I brought back with me uh, than I took with me, so that was uh, very interesting. Um, uh, Chibundu Onuzu, who some of you will hopefully meet next week, uh, said recently, Lagos is no different from anywhere except there are more people, uh, more noise, and more, more everything. Um, as Johan said, uh, the, the world's population is growing, uh, but nowhere more so than in Africa. Lagos itself has 2,000 new uh, visitors uh, a day who don't leave Lagos again. They come to stay. Uh, Africa will itself have, uh, I think it's around 4 billion uh, population by the end of the century. And given that the existing population is about 1 billion, which is about the same as Europe, that's quite a staggering uh, statistic. And it also, as we all know, is, is, is happening. Most of those people are going to be living in cities. So if you're somebody like me, you might wonder, what the hell am I doing here in Oslo, being an urban planner? Because that's where cities are going to be built, in, in Africa. Um, we also know that, I don't know, maybe 95% of the world's buildings are not built by architects and engineers and governments and, 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 uh, and other professionals and, and the, at the state level. They're built by normal people. Um, so, uh, this is what we saw uh, when, when, I, when I went to Africa, and it's what you're going to hear about today. Uh, we have some wonderful speakers, uh, Victoria Ibazim Ohaeri, and uh, Fabienne Hetzel. Yeah, that was the hard one. And uh, my partner's German, so I really uh, failed there. Uh, from ETH Zurich. Victoria's going to speak first. You're from Spaces for Change. Uh, housing and Urban Governments Organization in, uh, in Lagos. Uh, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and your work, and um, then uh, uh, Fabian will speak afterwards. And maybe while you're speaking, you can just give us a little flavor of Lagos, because we're, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cold out there and gray and dark, so we'd like a bit of life. Uh, so over to you, Victoria. OK, thank you, Jeff. Good evening. So my name is um, Victoria. I'm from Nigeria, particularly Lagos, the city of no. No everything, no warmth, and we never really get this cold, never. So like two, four, seven of winter, of summer, we never look for the sun, it's always there. And um, I'm really excited to see lots of young people in the room. I say this because that was what um, prompted me to start Faces, um, found Spaces for Change. Spaces for Change started, um, I took an interest in urban development at a very young age, in my early 20s. And I found myself traveling a lot around the world. And in most of the spaces I was engaging or interacting with, I found I was always the youngest person in the room. And back at home, it was even worse because there weren't people my age who were interested in urbanization, energy, environmental sustainability, all of those conversations. So that was what prompted me to use the social media at first to connect with my peers to tell them about what was happening you know, in the urban arena and how decisions would be made that impacted on the way that they live. And from there, Spaces for Change, um, after a few years of operating online, we moved to physical operations. So now we're doing more of um, research and advocacy. 
around urban displacement and uh, energy. And uh, we're narrowing down our focus also on gender. We're looking at how um, urbanization is affecting different groups like women and the youth and people living in slum areas. We are also using um, a number of other strategies like litigation. I'm a lawyer by training. So we try to use the instrumentality of the law to engage inequality around the urban processes, whether it is in terms of housing, whether it is in terms of the displacement that results from um, social and economic policies. It's not just housing policies that lead to displacement. Different social and economic policies, even political ones, also lead to um, displacement. So the issue of displacement sits at the center of our urban sector work, how majorly people living in slum areas are being taken out of their homes. And within a short time, the same areas transform into luxurious apartments that they can no longer afford. So that conversation about inequality and displacement of people, because if displacement is targeting both rich and net poor neighborhood the same way, then probably it's a consequence of policy. But if it's consistently targeted at a particular set of people, then there's a human rights issue that is implicated. So those human rights conversations are kind of things we're interested in. So um, in terms of other things you need to know about Lagos, um, he has said a lot. Um, Lagos, um, I think I, by 2030, 60% of all the people in the world will be living in slums. And 95% of the rapid urbanization will be happening in the developing world. So Lagos is important because as the fastest city, fastest growing city in the world, I think it's 5% per hour. So that means a lot. It means that a lot of that rapid urbanization is going to happen in Lagos. And with the slum proliferation in Lagos now, it means that the current, I think the current statistic is about eight to eight million people living in African slums. So up to one third or one quarter of that number may just be in Lagos alone. So anybody that's interested in urban development, urban expansion should be looking at Lagos. So I welcome you to Lagos. Good evening. <laughs> Okay, so I'll be careful what I'll be saying. <laughs> so, um, yes, I am an architect and urban designer, a bit more of an urban designer actually than an architect. Um, I run a firm with the funny name Fabulous Urban, <laughs> and we do mostly projects in Lagos, Lagos only actually at the moment. And I'm also a researcher. I used to be a researcher at DTH and then now a professor of urban design in Stuttgart, which is a um, German city. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it. <laughs> it has the same amount of residents, actually. So, All right, so back uh, to Lagos. So I, actually, uh, I have, in a way, quite a similar profile, uh, like Victoria, we also know each other. So we're doing urban design, we're doing architecture, but we're more of activists, actually. And we work together with uh, human rights organizations and with residence organizations like the Nigerian 
slum uh, informal settlement dweller federation. It's a terrible name. It's a very long name, but it's a fantastic federation. Slum dwellers that organize themselves in savings groups. One savings groups, a group has about 10 to 30 families, and then they save a little bit of money every week, uh, what they can, $1, $2 and then do a project together. And we support them with that sort of project. For instance, we're currently working on infrastructure hubs in several uh, slum settlements. For instance, one is Adadogambe. Uh, there were forced evictions before Christmas. Now people are coming back, going back, and we support them with infrastructure projects. Uh, uh, we, I like to call this uh, strategic uh, infrastructure projects because they're very small. Uh, because the funds we have, we raised now $20,000, for instance. It, it's not much, obviously. And then we have a bit of money from the residents themselves. So funds are scarce anyhow. Uh, problems are huge. Uh, uh, masses of people without infrastructure. So those projects have to be super strategic because that's my ambition to always sort of change, also influence influence, inspire uh, the governance structure. And we always try to involve government uh, in a way that we invite them. We, uh, we are in constant conversation with them. And one of the projects, and actually that's why I was invited, was this research we did last year, urban planning processes um, in Lagos. It was commissioned by the Heinrich Böll uh, Foundation, Nigeria. It's a German foundation, but the Nigerian uh, branch. And I did lead the research, and we looked into several uh, projects. It's a very critical report. We just talked about it. Um, I mean, I'm an urban planner myself. I know what it means to work in government. But I would say legacy government is deeply struggling because it's overwhelming the work they have to do. That's that's no doubt. Uh, and uh, it's difficult. There are no funds. Uh, we heard the numbers. But just the policies are not pro-poor enough. And that's a huge problem because 70%, and this is a rather conservative figure, are poor to very poor. And if the projects you're developing and you're looking at one of these, the Lekki Free Trade Zone here in this report, is targeting, uh, again, we just touched on this before, about 1% of the overall population, something goes wrong. I mean, um, so, uh, and this is a bit my concern, both in research and also uh, doing my PhD, despite of being a professor. That's funny, but it happens. <laughs> so I'm uh, doing a PhD research also on Lagos, also on how uh, pro-poor urban uh, development, how this can be done with the population, and so on and so forth. And we do projects, so I think that's enough. So you get an idea of what I'm doing. Thank you very much. Um, just uh, a little bit going back to those numbers. My experience in uh, Port Harcourt, um, we had the, a little bit like you, you were working on uh, small projects that somehow scale up, but at the same time working closely with uh, government officials. And in our case, it was the commissioner for urban development or something. And what I found when I spoke to him was that this incredible sense of the need for control over the city. So when he went out into the city and saw what he felt was chaos, I saw incredible street life. And this is the great irony coming from Europe, is that uh, what we value or what we would like here in Oslo, for example, is street life, activity, uh, community, closeness. And this is what you get in, uh, well, slums, but these are actually you know informal settlements, people's communities that have been built over decades. 
So what the government saw as a, as a need to uh, control, we saw as a fantastic ability to build. Um, how, and given that those huge numbers, it's, it's going to be impossible for the government to build what needs to be built for the people. And, the, and it's, it's also, we found out that it was also incredibly difficult for them to demolish what they didn't like, simply through cost and, and, and practicalities. So how can we get to a situation where the government and the people come together in a collaboration? Because it's, it, however fantastic uh, for me, some of those informal settlements were, there were still big infrastructure challenges. We talked about this last night. Sanitation, um, electricity, energy. How can governments collaborate with uh, huge informal settlements to create uh, upgrading new settlements? Um, because what I found is that those people in informal settlements, they want development. It's not like they're just anti-development. Either of you, Victoria or Fabian. Um, it's, <clears throat> it's very possible and most, if you see the official rhetoric around urban development, it's in accord with what you just said, we want to work together with communities. It's really the execution and the motivations that vary. Um, the motivations are interesting, and probably if you understand the motivations, you'll find out why it is difficult for that kind of collaboration to happen, even though um, there's a biblical way of saying it, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And government comes with a different intention entirely to improve a neighborhood. They really mean they want you know, they really mean well. But the type of improvement we have in mind may not be may not align with the kind of improvement people want. So usually the informal setting, the kind of improvement they want is something in situ that allows them to improve their social and economic conditions, you know allows improvement in their physical structures that they live, that allows greater tenant security. That's what they mean. But for government, it may also mean I'm going to remove all of you from here and take you somewhere else, maybe push you to the um, peripheries or deep down to the remote areas where you have even limited, more limited access to infrastructure and services. To the government, it means reconstructing the entire landscape into um, luxurious apartments for the super rich. It could mean handing over the land to a private company to set up you know, maybe a factory, because um, there's this job creation mantra that is tabled. You know, when we build this infrastructure, we create 2,000 jobs, blah, 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 blah. So that. Um, clash of intentions is usually the problem. The problem um, for urban planners is how do you begin to mediate the clashing intentions, the cl conflicting objectives on this side, on that side. And because these other people, they control power, they have their apparatus of state power. So it's usually very difficult because there's a lopsided relationship where power is concentrated on one side, and the other side, what is just required of them is participation, but the decision making is on the other side. So in practice, it's been very difficult. There are lots of models that tried the type of collaboration. It's not, I don't know the most successful model. The model I, I can say this is the most successful that 
has happened. There are lots of initiatives like that, but at the end of the day, there are still like some serious challenges. Maybe because of the conversation, we're going to discuss the motivations. What really makes government do handle projects this way? Because somebody may be thinking, is it that the government doesn't care enough about the people? Is it that the government does not mean well, doesn't really want people's lives to be improved? You know, so there are different factors that are responsible for that. So. Um, just to add a few things to, um, to defend Lagos State Government a bit. Um, uh, I really can mostly talk about Lagos support target. I, I, I don't know uh, that well, but um, Lagos has a problem in perception. Lagos is perceived as being dangerous, as being chaotic, and that sort of turns off people and investment. And Lagos State Government tries to sort of um, approach this by partly creating a luxurious gated communities because they think if we have that sort of environment, uh, uh, people would come from Europe, from the US, they would bring their families, they would trust that their kids could go to a private school within that gated compound uh, whatsoever. So that's a bit, um, let's say, one of the reasons why there this clash what you described. And the other thing is that to um, uh, urbanize, I mean, it's already urbanized, but to bring in the infrastructure to Lagos that is needed. Lagos is one of the biggest cities in the world with one of the smallest infrastructures in the world compa compared to the size. So it, it was never sufficient. Already in the 80s, it was not sufficient. Not to talk about what is now and what will come. So obviously, there's money needed for that. And uh, Fashola, the former uh, governor, that is, uh, he's now in Abuja, secretary of uh, uh, Help me, uh, housing. housing, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, his model was a bit this uh, uh, direct foreign investment model. So his idea was, or still is, to create legally free trade zones that are not uh, according to Nigerian law, let's say. You can bring in as much money as you want. You don't have to pay taxes and so on and so forth in order to attract investment from outside, always with this argument where you said, uh, we create jobs, we create jobs. The thing is, uh, even if those jobs will be created, the people in Lagos, normal average people in a very positive sense, they will not be able to take those jobs because these jobs would require high skills and the education is not there. So even if that story would happen, I, d I see the argument behind Fashola's sort of, um, he wanted to create a new model for African urbanization. That's how he called it. I, I, I see I see what he means, and it's not even stupid. I, I mean, writing that in this report, the thing is it will not work, because it will not trickle down to those who really need it. And I think that's that's the main sort of, of thing. And Lagos State government uh, sort of, I, I don't know, I, I think it's, as you said, I don't think they it's a, it's a bad will or so. It's just that they don't know how, I mean, it's so enormous a challenge. They just then do something, and then they do a world-class, lucky free trade zone, and that's in on the forefront of development, and they, they think that's a way to solve it. But then they're creating a lot of other problems. So I think it's, and then la one last point, uh, um, the thing is also in, in Nigeria, you don't, the, the, the concept of a mayor doesn't exist. So you only have governors, uh, which I think is one of the main problems. So the policies are just not urban enough, right? I mean, a governor has another task than a mayor. So Lagos 
is Lagos State, basically, even though it goes beyond the boundaries, of course, metropolitan Lagos is even bigger than, than Lagos State. But you don't have a mayor, you have a governor. But the governor has naturally another sort of role uh, towards national government, maybe even uh, um, regionally, than a mayor. And I think that's also one, in my opinion, one, one of the critical points that should be addressed. Uh, instruments and governance structures and so on and so forth. Actually, has mayors. Um, they don't call it mayors. They have like what they call local government chairmen that should be performing the role of mayors. But right. But yeah, this is right what you're saying. But they don't have any budget and they don't have any power. So it's 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 sort of district mayor. That that that's true. But they don't even have the power to assign uh, land for a recycling station. So it's it's. I, I think that not thinking urban enough is in my opinion one, is not only in Lagos, this is in my opinion one of the major challenges in Western Africa at all. Uh, one of the most liberating things uh, in our work in, in Port Harcourt was that uh, when we worked with the community we were working with, um, they were well organized, they were able to make decisions very quickly uh, on land that was being built and um, Although uh, I suppose they would be classed as urban poor, there was actually a huge financial resource within the community because the community was working together. So if a, if, if a, if a portion of road would be built, there would be a, a small tax on the people who had cars, and then you'd build the road. So what we found is that um, uh, the buildings that we were building were quite fundable. Uh, they were also buildable because there was a huge amount of labor um, there were materials close by. So one of our arguments to the government was that the, the, the displacement of people uh, actually removes the, the labor. And a lot of the funding, bottom-up funding, and the skills and the time and the capacity to actually build the city. Um, Victoria, maybe you could speak a little bit about the effects of displacement, because that's one of the main things we're talking about, the displacement of people from their homes. For, who have been living maybe in these homes for, for, for many decades, or often at short notice. What happens when people are, are moved away? What is the impact of that? Yes, there are multiple impacts on various levels. The first is homelessness. You know, there's, there's people in the face. And um, what makes it very concerning is that um, evictions usually take place when people are at work. So it means that you have evicted populations had limited opportunity to like pack up mm. the things that are important to them, um, make relocation plans, and even try to negotiate a postponement. That time is hardly available, you know, availed to the evicted. Then the second thing that happens is during that time of the day, the when people at work, in many families, particularly in the slum areas where women don't work, not that they don't have means of life, they work around the home. Some of them have like small shops in front of their houses where they engage in petty trading. So the women are usually the ones that encounter the bulldozers. Um, because evictions are usually characterized by resistance, mass resistance, so the officials don't just come alone, they come with heavily armed security operatives. 
and they can be resilient. They can be resilient. And women bear the brunt of that brutality most of the time. So I witnessed evictions in 2005 where a woman had um, a woman went into abrupt labor because when she saw the bulldozer, she was running up and down, she was looking for the children, she was packing her bags, and instantly she went into labor and she had a baby, the baby died instantly. It also happened in Nakuku where women delivered twins abruptly, just during the demolition, and she was screaming and shouting at the bulldozers and the babies came out and when the babies died, she just removed her clothes and ran mad. And she's still in a mental facility to today. So um, the effects on women are huge. Then the other thing is the disruption that happens. The first is the disruption of children's education because they have to change to some other school because children only go to schools within the neighborhood. The other thing is the disruption of community closeness. You talked about it. Um, those informal settlements, they thrive on those bonds, the bonds of you know, solidarity of, you know, communal living. That is a place where you don't have water, you don't worry because you can just move into your neighbor's house and get a, take a cup of water, you drink, and you're fine. And maybe you work, your children can just play in your neighbor's house until you come back. So those support networks are very important to them. And those networks are automatically disrupted. In fact, for them, that is what depends on the most. Because moving to new locations means moving into an environment where you don't know people, where you don't think your children are safe, or your children will be welcomed. And um, the other thing to take note of is um, the conversations around resettlement and compensation are usually very delayed. And it comes, sometimes it may come at a time that you no longer even be useful no longer been useful. Then another thing is that the majority of the people, that is the argument we've made about a legal state government, is that when we demolish Islam, we are not solving a problem. We are relocating the problem. Because it is never going to happen that I earn, let me say, Islam dweller earns $10 a week. If you demolish his house, he's still earning $10 a week. So he is going to find to locate himself to somewhere that is consistent with his income. So he moves to another slum, waiting for the day where attention span gets to that slum. So if you look at all the people living in Marokko, they have lived in Marokko before. If you have looked at all those that were in Marokko, they have lived in. So they keep moving around all the slums. So you don't solve the problem because they keep relocating themselves to the different slums. Then another thing um, also is that I, I don't think it's cheaper to demolish. I don't think it's cheaper because if you look at the expense involved, for instance, when Adam Wolf was, you know, they had to import swamp boogies because the place is um, half on water and half on land, and had to import infrastructure for the purpose of demolition just to one community. So imagine if you spend a bit of that money. I know some infrastructure purchases are not important, but if you use a bit of that money and added it 
to do some of the demands, you could actually improve services, access to services. I think the problem of slums really is access to services. If you expanded their access to sanitation and water in particular, and maybe roads, there may not be any slums in any part of the world, not just Nigeria. What makes a community a slum really is just the absence of those services or the limited presence of those services. In other settlements that are not regarded as slums, the services are very functional, like sanitation, regular water supply is very regular. So if you also, in also the most in the most high class neighborhoods, if you remove those services within those, they look like in other slum. So I think it is not even cheaper for the government in terms of effects. But the effects are minimal. Then the other part is also um, the limitation in economic opportunities because majority, sometimes when resettlement happens, they're taken to places that are really far off from the city, so they have to spend on transportation. And uh, in those new locations, there are no jobs. Uh, and economic opportunities are just so limited that they can't drive. So they find their way back to the city and back to another slum. So it's just like a multiplier effect. It keeps on. Fabian, as, a, as an urban planner, you are a visionary. That's your part of your job, to think about the future and, and create visions for the future. And uh, if that cycle of, of demolition uh, and, and breaking those networks and all of those fantastic resilient qualities, good community infrastructure, good decision-making, um, finance, uh, participation, labor. If, if those assets are not destroyed and uh, we begin to deal with uh, essential services, energy, water, sanitation, what is the potential of informal settlements uh, from a uh, yeah, general point of view, but also spatially? I mean, uh, architecturally, in terms of uh, streets, schools, uh, uh, I felt that there was, it's not necessary for the government and to build houses, c to come and build houses. It's not necessary for the government to come and build schools even. But there seemed to be an incredible potential for highly attractive, uh, desirable, and um, also sustainable uh, pieces of city, because these are not communities that uh, consume heavily or travel in a, a detrimental way environmentally. Um, what is the potential of African cities outside the organized city? Well, I mean, this is one of the arguments we use usually towards government um, to tell them, hey, I mean, it's a very sort of uh, market view, economic view, but we're telling, hey, you're just neglecting here a huge market potential. All those people, they could buy, consume, and then they could pay taxes. <laughs> then you would have more income. <laughs> so that's usually the argument we use uh, when we do such a regeneration plan. That's the argument we used uh, when we did the Makoko regeneration uh, plan. And we then also tell them, OK, you have to give them access, access to the job market, which they don't have right now. I mean, the informal economy is huge. Um, and one step would be to recognize at least that uh, informal economy. I mean, there's some activists and researchers working on that uh, in Lagos to really push that, uh, that issue. Unfortunately, and this is hard to understand, Lagos government is exactly going into um, the opposite direction, also in terms of mobility. 
Lagos has right now, I think, quite a beautiful um, interplay between formal and informal uh, structures. And the mobility system is fantastic to actually study that. Uh, because you have those, uh, you might know the images, those who don't know Lagos, you have the yellow uh, buses, then you have the the, the Kekenape, uh, so you have a whole system, and you, actually they were, once they were informally, now they're sort of organized in, in association, associations, and they are also regulated sort of by Lagos State Government. This is quite a beautiful system, right? And what, what Lagos State Government is now trying to do is to sort of substitute those um, uh, yellow uh, buses because they're saying it's too dangerous. And then we had a lot in, in, in relation with that report, we had uh, a lot of uh, meetings with them discussing our findings. And so this was a, a, a proven back process. And we told them, but you're doing a huge mistake because those people, they were saying they are mentally ill, they're drunk, they don't have a license, it's dangerous. Yes, I mean, this is partly true, it is dangerous. So why don't you educate those people a bit better? But you keep them as drivers because if you're going to substitute it with something else, those people will lose their jobs. And this is not good, this is not good for the development of the city. But I, we keep on repeating that argument because I'm convinced of it. It would be much better also to do BRT because BRT, everybody can drive a bus. You can teach them, then they drive a bus. But now they're doing monorail, uh, light rail, uh, Chinese, of course, Chinese partners, uh, Chinese uh, trains, uh, probably also Chinese drivers, Chinese materials, which I think is, is, is it's sort of understandable because the, the, really the urge is huge to change something. The pressure is huge. Also from outside, Lagos is sort of, you know, everybody sees it. But then I really think you have to work with the people and I'm sure there will be ways. And But I I, I don't know why they're not, it, it's, it's, it, it's really, um, but the, the, I mean, we, we as I said, even in plans, uh, we really, uh, in research and plans, we keep on repeating it. Um, maybe it's because, because if you're in the state of Lagos, I also lived in Sao Paulo for three years. I worked there in slum upgrading with the city. I think Sao Paulo is very different from Lagos, but however, it's also so-called second world city. If you're in that stage, maybe, you just want development. We, we also know that from China. You just want to move forward and you're not interested in looking back. You're not interested in those slums. Uh, you just want uh, Singapore. You want uh, Shanghai. You want you want all the great seas sort of things because you feel this is progress. This is where we want to get. Why do we have dirty streets? We also want clean streets like in, in London, like in New York. Uh, I, I think this might play sort sort of a role in that this discussion, that huge pressure in also beautifying the city. That's what they also use in the strategic development plan, the beautification of Lagos, and this also has to do why they're uh, cleaning, uh, clearing slums. Makoko, you see, it's from the third mainland bridge. If you drive down to to Victoria Island, Lagos Island, where everybody is, especially the white, I mean, you see, you see Makoko there, and they feel like <gasps> they're coming into our city and they see those this mess. You know, we have to clean it. You know, it needs to be beautiful, uh, and it's really hard to to sort of. Yeah, break. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, where I've worked is actually the most the safest part of Port Harcourt was uh, the communities that I was working with. Who, who's been to an informal settlement or a slum or whatever we want to call it? Hands up. A lot. A lot. Very good. Good. Uh, then it's time to ask you to ask some questions. Um, 
if you'd like to ask questions, please do. Kind of try and keep it short and sweet. And um, I think you're going to have to run to the front and uh, use one of these microphones. So uh, yeah, welcome. You have to come here. <laughs> Up you come, sir. Ah, there is a mic. Are you going to use that one now? Okay. Oh, thanks. Um, hello. Thanks very much for the introductions you've given. Um, speaking specifically from Lagos, I, I understand the picture that you've both um, painted in terms of the people who are displaced from the slums, as well as the pressures on the government. But I grew up in Lagos, and I kind of understand both sides. and. I'm thinking of how can we define a sustainable path? Because speaking specifically about Makoko, I can understand that there are people who lose their homes, who lose their livelihoods and all that. But at the same time, it's an area that we can build so much, which, sorry to sound like um, an ugly capitalist, but we can create jobs there, right? And so, for example, a good example is Oshodi right you know it was a mess before but the government came in and i believe they put in some order and i think things work no i think things i think things are working better now there's less crime um so my issue is how can it be done in such a way that you can still have urban development but at the same time you make sure that the people who may have to move it happens. They are well taken care of. That's just my point, right? Please. Okay. Um. Thank you very much. Uh, that question comes up all the time. I since this is also um, but um, a mixed audience, but um, Nigerian and non-Nigerian. I think I have to share one or two findings from a study we just conducted. Um, a spaces for change, where we are looking at the triggers um, of urban We are looking at the general governance of displacement in Nigeria, and I authored a chapter that was looking at the real triggers of urban displacement. And those real triggers, um, job creation is one of them. It's called job creation, but job creation is not the real reason. Another reason that is concerning is foreign investment. A lot of investment that comes to Nigeria, a lot of things that come to Nigeria framed as investment. But that investment simply means, can you displace your people and give you their land? That's what it means. And um, another thing is called donor-assisted interventions. It has beautiful names like slum upgrading, urban renewal, flood control, that's how it's packaged. It simply means, can you shift all of these poor people in your country somewhere else and give me their land? That's what it means. And um, there are other ones, like the corporate interests, play a huge role, and they are framed as job creation, private sector participation. Those are colorful words, but it simply means, can you just do away with this promise with the people and hand their lands over to me? So if you're talking about any meaningful 
solution without dealing with these triggers. You just believe in inefficiency. You just in a cycle, you know, cycle of displacement. We need to deal with this interest. These interests are the real reasons why development is happening, and that is what you see in Oshodi. Let me tell you what a bit of what I think happened in Oshodi. The poor thrive on informality. Not they want to be informal, but because the kind of businesses that they are involved in, the government does not recognize it. And government does not want it to give it legal recognition. And because government doesn't want legal recognition, they say to themselves, I can't afford to rent this shop. No matter how beautiful that shop is, I just can't afford to rent a shop. I would rather just do it at the street corner and hop my ways. A businessman comes into the location, looks around, and sees the volume of trade happening there. He says, I see business opportunity here. Wow. If I actually found a way to collaborate with the government and deal with, deal with all these poor people and put a shopping mall here, people will have no alternative than to come to my shopping mall. That's what happens. They go back to the state, have meetings, come up with a policy code, job creation. That job creation, how does it happen? They first of all go to Oshodi, clear everyone, the next day you see a shopping mall. And when there's a shopping mall, people are too tired to walk very long distances to find basic things they need, water, onions, tomatoes. The mall is more expensive in the shopping mall, they just walk in there. What has happened is that the money that one million people would have made has been channeled to one post. It's only capitalism. That is a problem of Lagos. I'm queuing up. Sorry. <laughs> then the gentleman behind you. Maybe, maybe we yeah. can do it too. Yeah. Anyway, thank you both for uh, for your uh, introductions. I have two questions, I think, for Victoria. One is uh, in in the context of these extreme inequalities in in Lagos uh, and the sheer number of the poor people. They it kind of logically seem they should have power in the numbers. So then comes the question, so how organized are they? You've named a couple of, of organizations, but to what extent do they have kind of an umbrella organization for most poor? Are they divided by ethnicity, kinship, uh, geography, and to what extent do they work together? And and do they do they use that kind of organizational base in, in political processes, for instance, in, in advance of the 2015 elections, governmental elections? How do they interact uh, politically? So that is kind of a very simple question on politics. Uh, and I have a question on, on law. You said you use the law as, uh, as a leverage, and, and I'm a bit curious on on how you do that more concretely, how does the law protect in, in the constitution or in the, in the local state law, protect poor, protect these people, especially considering that so many are migrants that are not from Lagos, and to what extent do they have the right to land if they come from outside? Yeah. 
That was very concise. Mm. <laughs> First of all, very important. <laughs> very important. Umbrella political uh, activism, and then secondly, uh, law. Yeah, the problem with organizing, um, particularly around displacement, the problem I have is a personal problem I have with a lot of networks is that they're donor-driven. And once a movement is donor-driven, it's prone to capture. That's just the problem. What Nigerian slums need is really a federation that is just people-driven. I remember when in the early days of NLC, NLC was the strongest movement in the country. Up until 2014, it was the last government that weakened NLC. NLC can, when the government before, they can wake up one morning and increase the price of gasoline by maybe a dollar. NLC will just in the small office in any part of the country and say, everybody start home for two weeks and nobody steps out. Um, the government hated the NLC. The NLC hated the government. There were just two movements, and it was just purely people-driven. But at some point, they began to listen to a lot of sophisticated conversations about collaborations, about networking, about stakeholder engagement, those beautiful phrases. NLC was weakened. Now there are many factions, about two or three factions. One faction issues a statement, another faction counters it. So people are confused and there's no followership anymore. So the organizing happens. Communities, you know, within the different communities that are displaced, they all have different movements, very strong movements, but they are operating intra-community. How to make that movement effective intra-community is what Urban groups need to do more. I think they started a bit in Portacourt and slowed down, maybe because the demolition slowed down. But they started, I think there was also some nice examples in Portacourt where the movements, you know, but it didn't have a name. They just had a network of informal people who hear about eviction, maybe in Mondays, they all go there, and, or in Bundu, just didn't have. I think this kind of networks are very organic and more sustainable. Nigerian slums need more of that. But you ask, also ask a question about using the law. Using the law is simply, um, displacement doesn't just happen in Nigeria. There are regulations governing displacement in Nigeria. They actually statutory safeguards. Under um, the Constitution, the Constitution guarantees the right to property and puts in some safeguards that you must follow before you displace somebody of his interest or right in the property. For instance, you are required to pay compensation then secondly, you are required to give the person access to fair hearing to a court of law to determine the propriety of the compensation you want to pay to him. So um, that's what the problem is, the implementation. Then we also have what we called the land use act that reinforces what the, con the constitution says that like gives a breakdown how the compensation is determined, what is calculated on the and the land use act is a bit problematic because it compensates the displaced for only the property on the land, not for the land. You're never compensated for the land. So if you're land picking and you don't have any property on it, you don't get anything because you assume that the land belongs to the state. 
but you own the property on the land. And that is why majority of poor people don't get anything when they're displaced. Um, the other thing is in a rural area, you get compensated for there's some degrees of trees called economic, classes of trees called economic trees. So some tr trees that yield fruits and certain kind of crops. And the compensation regime was developed shortly after independence with all the inflation and all that. So the money really um, is very tiny, it's very little, doesn't do much for people who get it. So the compensation mechanisms, we still try to use those safeguards as a basis to challenge displacement, to really uh, proceed upon the premise that people are given fair hearing, and usually there's no fair hearing because the malicious notice is like in Lagos, the popular notice is like seven, eight days. So seven, eight days in all standards cannot, does not translate to notice, adequate notice for somebody to relocate. So um, we question that. We also look at the compensation, but the compensation Part of the problem with compensation, majorly people who have legal documentation are compensated. Majority of people who live in informal settlements lack formal documentation to the land on which they live. So what we really do with litigation is that it's a bet. Because when there's displacement first for this first few days, there's a lot of outrage, we're holding placards. Um, we will take it, we will agree this is unacceptable and we're making a lot of money. Government says, if you don't, they'll get tired in a few days. And they do it, not us. So what we do is we go to court and they get the court summons. Once they get it, then they say to themselves, it seems they're serious, they're really serious. Let's invite them to a meeting. That's, uh, that was the original plan to get them to talk to these people and negotiate something. So it's really a negotiation for compensation and settlement. And it triggers administrative remedy. What we are interested in attributing remedy is that it's quicker, it's faster, it opens up the process for people to negotiate. Maybe the state might say, okay, can we give you alternative land far away? It's better than just total displacement. When I say, okay, will you give that alternative land, will you be covered by a CFO, like tenant security for them? And they say, okay, yes, we give it any security, but you have to move to this place. When I say, can we first of all have the certificate first? Give it to us first. And they can worry about themselves, how they can do the sharing of the plots and all that. I think that was what happened in Lucky Free Trade Zone. So give us this, we take this, and we take So it's really like litigation opens the doors to too many things, particularly negotiation. And that negotiation is what communities are after. Because if you really go through the court channels, your chances are not that we are in abroad. Because courts will start asking questions about your legal documentation. The law is really about documentary evidence. So once you don't have that, some judges are very impatient. They say, oh, you don't have legal documentation, just came to us the time of the court. Okay, I rule against you. And it's too bad for the communities. So we just put that action in court, start, go back and do our talking, hoping that before the mitigation process pans out, we've gotten some kind of an administrative response, or some money or something, any kind of remedy, but not to go with, with anything at all.
may I add a few things? That there was this question from this person from Lagos who was asking, yeah, here. So the answer to your question is quite simple. You just need an inclusive planning approach. And this is not happening right now in Lagos. I agree with you, Oshodi was successful from the point of view you just described it. But as Victoria said, a lot of others did lose. And this is the opposite of an inclusive planning approach. And I invite you to study our report, the Lackey Free Trade Zone, which was such a thing, where with the argument of bringing in jobs, investment, uh, blah, 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 people were deprived from their livelihoods. And they were assigned to land that belonged to other communities already. And this is just the reality in, in urban planning in Lagos. And this is not the way you do it. I'm, as an urban planner, I'm not against development. I'm not against jobs. I'm not in, against investment. But the way it's done right now is not inclusive. It's aggressive. It's, it's repressive against the majority of the population. And this, this cannot be. And to answer the question about uh, organized, um, how people do organize themselves in slums, uh, for instance, in Makoko, where we did the regeneration plan and we did also implement the Makoko neighborhood hotspot, there you have a board that is called um, the Union of the Ogubales. So Bale is a natural sort of leader of one part of the community. So whatever we did on the regeneration plan and the implementation of the hotspot was discussed with the, with the I mean, you, you were with Sarah before, so you know the, the union of the Ogun Bales. So you have to discuss with all uh, the Bales. And then you decide on something, and then you go back. And this, of course, takes forever, because in Makoko, you have so many Bales. In other communities, it's much easier, because you only have one Bale. But Makoko is very special in that regard. And in the other communities, we work, this is what I said in the beginning, we work with the Nigerian Slum Dwellers Informal Settlement Federation. And this is a bottom-up organization with those savings groups I mentioned. And the area I mentioned before, Ododogambe, they have those savings groups, 30 savings groups. This is a bottom-up sort of thing. And now we help them through those savings groups to develop the projects in Ododogambe, supported by a human rights organization that is called Justice and Empowerment Initiatives. And the Nigerian Federation, we call it only Federation because the name is so long. They have those blue shirts. Uh, I have no slides here. I could show it to, to you, the meetings we do with them. However, they are also linked to the international uh, slum dwellers. So there is a organization locally, nationally, and even internationally. And this is absolutely necessary, because without that, all the actions we do, they're not sustainable at all. And whenever we work with community, this is one of our requirements, that people are already organized. We never work with communities that are not organized, because otherwise, you know, you're only creating new conflicts, because land is very complicated in Lagos. Then you have the royal families, then you have the ballets, then you have the associations. So this is very delicate, very complicated, very politically. But people are organized, actually. I mean, this is not, they sometimes too well organized it, so uh, that uh, sort of, of conflict. But, uh, well, I, I, yeah, okay, leave it there. It's such uh, interesting talking about demolition in Oslo because um, we talk about demolition here, well, we're starting to talk about it. There are uh, some neighborhoods around um, transport points or uh, interchanges which are now starting to become a little bit under threat from urban densification. 
and the process is uh, being seen as a little bit suspect. There's not a lot of dialogue, there's not a lot of discussion, there's not a lot of participatory urban development. And um, in, in Okrika waterfront in, in Port Harcourt, but also in Sheffield in England, uh, in, um, in London where I've worked, the potential of a participatory urban development process is that communities are entirely capable of making extremely difficult decisions about their own neighborhood. And that includes demolition. So one of the most eye-opening uh, meetings we had with the Commissioner for Urban Development in Port Harcourt was when the, we said that this community is proposing to demolish themselves, or at least a small part of it, because they want development. So uh, the collaboration of um, uh, uh, private sector, of government funding, of uh, uh, different actors in a participatory uh, project has the ability to um, upgrade and change dramatically communities. Um, but only if you have that participation and, orga and organization. So you uh, have a question? Uh, yes, I was just going to ask something about uh, the inclusive participation, but you just hit uh, the point very well, because I come from Port Harcourt myself. And um, I think part of the reason with part of the fallout of displacement, not just with uh, regards to infrastructure, but with regards to uh, managing the natural resource we have in that area, like in the Niger Delta region, Part of the things which you see are actually a result of people feeling excluded. And whenever there is an exclusion, it comes with a particular ripple effect, <laughs> which uh, generally leads to conflict and some other things. So three out of four times, when there is a relocation, it doesn't even shift the problem from where it should be to some other place. It practically exacerbates the problem. Myself, for example, uh, I might travel out of my home, and after some time, I feel this thing with a nostalgia. Nostalgia itself is just a way of telling me that even in my environment where I stay, I have a particular ecological identity, which is very much linked to that environment. So if you take me out of there, how will you compensate me for that? You know, so some of those problems are what we really don't uh, factor in when these things are done. And I would also give an instance, like when we talk of investment, in a place like the city of Bonny, which is thriving with oil and gas and everything, you know, before you meet these people in Bonnie, you have rural fishermen, you have local farmers and all this. And then when you come with a huge FDI project, some of them have been employed, exposed to plenty amount of money. And that way there's an automatic change in the lifestyle pattern. And these projects are not sustainable because three out of four times there are government projects that might just lie five, ten years. After five, ten years, you pack up everything and then you go, how then does it continue? What exactly have you planted in there? How then are these people going to thrive? How are they going to uh, balance uh, the life which they experience now and the rush for urbanization you know, with uh, some other means of uh, practice in the past which has been very sustainable? And I was also going to ask how exactly have we or do we uh, intend to see the law as an instrument to make for these amends? Because it becomes very difficult in itself, like legislations like the Land Use Act, like she was saying, the Land Use Act has, uh, was uh, a legislation which was passed as a ministry decree, uh, decree. So it has that uh, dictatorial spirit in the Land Use Act, wherein the governor himself can actually tell, I want this land to be used for this purpose, and then there is not that right-based approach to decision-making, which is also like an inclusive uh, participation. Yes, yeah, so I was just going to ask, how exactly do we intend to uh, see that these things are being pushed to the limits, and we find a solution to uh, this uh, problem? Because if we should, uh, if we recall, as at when the situation in the Niger Delta started back then in 1993, 95, it wasn't something in which uh, you had groups that were 
carrying arms against the government. It started like a peaceful protest. But the more we continue with this exclusion, exclusion, the problem keeps growing like a cancer cell. I'll also give an example like, uh, I think that was uh, when the Norwegian government was to do a project around the Finnmark area. And uh, the, uh, when some Sami persons felt that there was uh, some bit of exclusion and there was this time uh, someone actually blew up a dynamite and ended up uh, blowing up his hands. You know, so it comes naturally. In every human society, when you feel that degree of exclusion, then there is that, uh, there's that bitterness you hold against the government when you feel like you're not included. And it doesn't really help much when uh, with some of the legislations we have, has the military spirit behind them, and that way the people still feel excluded even with the law. So I don't know, how do we push this to the limits to see that we find certain solutions to that? I think that's something we might need to think about. Integration as one of uh, the very cardinal things with sustainability. Also, I think also education, I mean, the Land Use Act, I mean, it's true, this is a powerful instrument, but it's not as powerful as people think. But people are so af afraid of the governor and the Land Use Act, and this is part of the problem, you know, like the authorities, you know, people are afraid of the authorities, and this is creating some sort of myth of wrong power, which I think is, is extremely wrong. So it's about educating people and the organization I'm working with, Justice and Empowerment Initiative, they exactly uh, educating people, you know, about the law, about their possibilities to actually go also against the governor, or, or go against the authorities. I mean, it's frightening how little people know what actually are their legal possibilities. I, I'm sure you can add a few words here, but I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, um, legal reform is critical, but how that happens is where um, the challenge lies. Um, Language art has what they called enjoys what they call that constitutional flavor. It means it requires the supermajority you know, for you to scale through the form. The supermajority rule simply says you need to just you need to get a consent of the federal parliament to tell the majority of the federal parliament to tell the majority of all the thirty-six state parliament, and it's legally impossible for all thirty-six states. And the federal agree on um, repealing the land use act. I, I agree with you that it was just that dictatorial spirit because they know that it's very important. They just wanted to make governance very powerful. And I think what probably informed that um, impossible rule was the challenge that the government encountered in the 70s to acquire, uh, acquire land, particularly in the southwest region. They could not to navigate through many customary authorities and bureaucracy. And at a point when they had it up here, they had to um, review the customary maintenance systems and give so much power to the government. And it's beginning to hurt the economy. It is becoming too oppressive. And the only way to get around it is not just going to be cured by information. Is going to be killed by legal reform. So there's a lot of work that organizations need to do to begin to win the hearts of the authorities. That's part of what we were discussing last night is to start presenting information. Because over the years, after working in the urban environment in Nigeria for over so many years, I have an idea of what works and what doesn't work. I think the activists, the campaigning organizations need to change 
strategy. Like I talk, told you last night, if we started engaging those difficult spaces and those difficult countries, sometimes some things require confrontation, some things don't require confrontation. For instance, if you use a particular method, if you probably had a strict protest, like I told you before, if we had a strict protest, government will respond the next hour. These days, if you have a truth about it, you don't mind them, you will get tired. They will listen to you. So usually, we now look for other creative ways of engaging the state, because it, the relationship between communities and the state is unequal, brutally unequal. And you need to be mindful constantly, you need to be constantly mindful of that inequality. The power, 99% of the power is on one side. All you have is your public power on the other side. So you need to find a way to open up, widen that gulf. And that is where what you just said in Mexico. The Land Use Act needs to be repealed as urgently as today, this evening. Because once you repeal that, it will really unlock a lot of potentials. It really unlock a lot of enormous opportunities that have helped the poor people living in the informal sector that has really held them down. If you just do away with that, majority of them will, I'm almost certain, will get a reprieve. Thank you. One more question, and I think then we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. Fantastic. Uh, no, this is just about the, the, the savings groups you mentioned. Uh, I was just curious how you overcame the sort of problem that they don't own their land. So the investment they made is an unsafe in investment. And this, like in other slums, you see these kind of projects never get off the ground because people are unwilling to invest in something that doesn't belong to themselves. So how you overcame that, I'd be very interested to hear. <laughs> well, we did not really overcome it. We're still struggling with it because, in fact, it's exactly what you're saying. Um, I can tell you an anecdote. We're working currently with four slums and those savings groups in different areas. And one of the communities, we had a meeting with the savings groups, and they said, yeah, we want this, we want that. We were already discussing which technique of the toilet, whether it's dry or not, and biogas, and so we were already getting in the project mode. And then we said, okay, tomorrow we're visiting the community, and you're, you're, um, you should uh, think of pieces of land we can use for the project. And the next day they would go and say, there's no land. Or let's say the ballet would not allow them uh, to use uh, uh, part of the land. So it's exactly one of those conflict points because we're working directly with the savings groups and the ballets sometimes do not uh, directly agree uh, with that. And uh, so I cannot really say we have overcome it, but we're sort of uh, trying to, to, to make it work, let's say. So we are still in, in, the, in the process, but it's one of those difficulties, yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Victoria and Fabian. Thank you for the questions. Uh, back to you, Johan. So I, I think I'll just uh, end this uh, session by uh, by saying, I mean, you are all welcome to, to stay around and to continue this discussion. Uh, we are here at Kluvense uh, for, for some time now, and also, uh, I would like to welcome you all to to the forthcoming uh, events uh, by the Norwegian Council for Africa uh, on Nigeria uh, in in the coming week, and also to the to the coming uh, Africa. I'll know each 
uh, each month, the last Wednesday uh, of the month here at, here at lab. Uh, so, but uh, for now, Jeff, Fabian, uh, Victoria, uh, please uh, give our uh, moderator and our speakers a warm applause. Thank you.